do my hair toss, check my nails, baby, how you feeling? Hair toss, check my nails, baby, how you feeling? Hey, you guys, this is Sarah Troutman, and welcome to Reveal, the podcast where we talk about incredible stories of amazing women and how they've used the best of behavioral science to find a pathway forward. But now I'm Dr. Alicia Halliday. I'm so excited to see you. <laughs> I am so thrilled to be doing this. I think this is just great. I listened to, I think, your first podcast. I'm mm-hmm. blanking on the, the your friend's name. Emily Call- Dr. Emily Callahan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I was so moved and so touched and so humbled that she actually compared her experience to the parent of a child with autism, I thought, gosh, no, 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 you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, Emily, things are always very traumatic, you know, it's always very dramatic, but at the same time, I can't even begin to imagine what that was like for her. And so just hearing her go through it and hearing her come through the other side, right? Because at some point Mm -hmm. you did say, you know, mm-hmm. by the way, he just turned five. So, yeah. um, so hearing that, you know, I mean, and, and clearly he, there's some, some issues, but, um, you know, and I'm continued to be humbled by families with, with kids with, you know, health, physical health problems, mental health mm-hmm. problems, behavioral problems, all of the three together. Um, yeah. so I'm no, really honored Emily... to be a part of this. Yeah, Emily is just there are no words. I mean, there's lots of words. I could spend an hour talking about all the words. Um but yeah, I mean, what we what you and I wanted to do today is a little bit of a departure on in terms of what we have done with other podcasts because the feedback that I've gotten from people is like, "Sarah, you didn't tell me that I was going to need 25 Kleenexes and like a redo <laughs> of my makeup when I listen to this podcast because everything has been just like these like deeply personal, you know, amazing stories, but also, you know, I mean, really um, emotional, Um, both, you know, Emily, our podcast with Anne, you know, Danielle, Carolina, I mean, they're just incredible women. But what we wanted to do today was something slightly different. So obviously, to provide some context, you know, we're like, in December, we're living our best COVID lives. I think that, you know, we all now kind of see the light at the the end of the tunnel a little bit. And for people that, that don't know, I met you when I was doing my other podcast, The Scoop, with my dear friend, Feda, and your dear friend, Feda. And so Feda, you know, when, when you were, we were first putting together all of our content, she's like, oh my gosh, we have to talk to Alicia you know, she's the chief science officer for the Autism Science Foundation. Also, she's just hilarious um, and swears just as much as, as we do. Uh, and she's like, she's she's my girl. Like, you have to talk to her. And so as soon as I met you, I was like, yes, we we are people. Um, and that's a thing. And so you did this podcast with Fade and I just talking about the 
issue of vaccines as it relates to autism, because this has been such a controversial subject. But we also talked about, hey, what's up with a, a potential COVID vaccine? And so when I was, you know, starting Reveal, I thought, gosh, you know, this would be a really great subject to revisit since there's been so much movement mm-hmm. over the last couple months. And also it would just give me an opportunity to see you. And, you know, I also wanted to talk with you just about what it's been like to do, you know, like the whole full-time mothering, pandemic parenting. Also, you know, you have twins, beautiful girls, and and one of your daughters has autism. And in the midst of, you know, all of this insanity, like how have you kept it together? So we're going to do like the personal check-in and then we're going to do the science vaccine check-in because I think there's a lot of people – there's so much information out there about the you know potential vaccines and we kind of have there's three on deck right now Mm -hmm. um but obviously you you know if you could give everyone just like a little bit of background just so they understand like why are you a trusted resource i mean besides just being like badass um but like really like they can they should listen and and trust what you're saying because you have a science background in fact you've published haven't you published over 50 scientific articles I don't think it's that many. I think it's more like 30, but... Um, but that's like still like 30 more than I've ever done, so... <laughs> well, we all contribute. I mean, I've been, you know, in a field where that's the thing, right? Like publish, 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 publish. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, you help families directly. Like how many families have you worked with? How many- Over 2,500. Yeah, so... Yeah. There you go. I mean, it's just it's just... <laughs> a different metric of, of contribution. So, yeah. So can you just um, kind of really briefly talk about kind of your, you know, um, your academic pedigree, but also just kind of your research interests, because I find it fascinating and you actually, uh, published an article this year and I linked it to the show notes. Ooh. Um, cause I think it's really fascinating. So take us on a journey, Dr. Halliday, in terms of your incredible, uh, scientific acumen, and why you um, are, you know, uniquely suited to be talking about this um, issue of vaccines today? Well, I actually got started in the autism field um, through my connection through pharmacology and toxicology. So I was in, I was a fellow looking at environmental exposures as they related to autism back when the vaccine autism hypothesis was first kind of generated around uh, 1998. And so, you know, back in 1998, when this paper, which was later retracted, came out, of course, you know, there was, people needed to study it, we needed to look at it a little bit deeper. And so I was on a project that did that. And, you know, we approached it all from what we know now, 20 years later to what we knew then, you know, we approached it from, you know, the wrong angle, that was okay, we got there because we studied it differently. But Mm -hmm. um, we know that it's not all about exposures when you're four or five years old. It's exposures when you're pregnant or preconceptional exposures. So um, anyway, as part of that project, I got to kind of work indirectly because I was working on animal models. And so, but part of the project went into families' homes and collected dust and water samples and what they were using around their home and hair and even vacuum to get dust, you know, to get stuff that kids were exposed to. Um, so I got to meet some of the families and um, I really, you know, th- I, I was just really like, that's where I wanted to go. That's where I, mm-hmm. I wanted to be. Um, so after I finished my fellowship, I started working at um, the National Alliance for Autism Research, which later kind of 
was absorbed by Autism Speaks. Mm -hmm. And then in 2014, I left Autism Speaks after 10 years to be the chief science officer of the Autism Science Foundation. And the Autism Science Foundation, I mean, one of the one of the the reasons for the genesis of the Autism Science Foundation was around the vaccine controversy. Um, even, you know, in 20, you know, in 2010, after many, many years of, re you know, dozens of papers and many years of research, there was still some, there still is, I mean, I'm not going to yeah. lie, some controversy in the community. And, um, you know, there needed to be an organization that was rooted in science. That was their number mm -hmm. one priority. There were organizations that were rooted in advocacy and awareness, and those were Autism Speaks and the Autism Society of America and, you know, helping families be accepted in the community and providing activities and making sure people and physicians knew the signs, which still needs to be done, but there really wasn't one dedicated to science. So the mm -hmm. president of, the, of ASF now, Allison Singer, started ASF in 2009, um, and I joined in 2014, and one of the you know, one of the basic tenets is we're based in science. We don't mm -hmm. communicate anything that's not evidence-based, um, that ha doesn't have scientific backing to it. Um, you know, everything that we do and we fund all sorts of science is focused on helping families um, based on scientific discoveries, but also helping explain the science to them. And mm -hmm. one of those things happens to be the link between vaccines and autism. Mm -hmm. Now, as part of that, you know, we've been involved in the vaccine controversy. I mean, even as we sit here today and you read on the news, everyone's so desperate to get this vaccine. And, you know, some people in the autism community and, I, and we're, we're part of this are like thinking about, OK, how do we prioritize who gets the vaccine? People in residential settings who are at high risk, should they get it first? Healthcare mm -hmm. workers that work with people in residential settings, you know, but there is a group of, of people that is still very much anti-vaccine. And they've kind of embraced this um, idea that vaccines cause autism and now have kind of um, that's morphed into, um, you know, and, and, and through, over time and then political leanings into the government shouldn't tell us what we should and shouldn't do, what we should and shouldn't put into our bodies. Um, you know, so... It's morphed a little bit. I don't think anyone is claiming that any new COVID vaccine is going to cause autism, although I mm -hmm. don't know. There could be facets of the community that believe that, but it's kind of morphed into I was forced or I, I was encouraged or, you know, I was told to get this vaccine for my child and that's why they have autism. So why on earth would I right. allow anyone in my family to get a vaccine that I wasn't completely... Um, that, you know, at all, you know, yeah. like I should be able to pick and choose. And so we've, you know, had to stay very active on that because of our involvement with vaccines and autism. Um, but I, you know, I think that the issue has morphed over time, mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, because now it's, you know, like you can, you can, you know, publish studies and do all this research. And there has been now it's like 30, 50 studies even in, you know, samples of, of people that have gotten the vaccine who haven't got, you know, MMR I'm talking about, not COVID, yeah. who've gotten different vaccines and they've looked at the rates of autism or things like that. And they've, they've been able to demonstrate, but ideologically, when you talk more about people's, you know, um, you know, either their moral beliefs or their political beliefs about how they, what, 
they will allow a government to do or whether they trust in public health or trust in science in general, I think that that becomes a bigger issue. And part of the mission of ASF is to ensure that families have access to scientific information. And um, it's it's attempted to be shared in a way that people can understand, right? Like you- yeah you know, kind of see some of these papers and they've got these bizarre, I mean, I know. And you're like, what are you talking titles, about? You I know, have no idea. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so the goal is to kind of say, you know, this is, this is why this is important to you. And, and, you know, this is what you should be listening to, but it, it's morphed beyond just autism. And that's unfortunate because I think that makes it a little harder to tackle. There's this there's been over the past several years, just kind of this pushback against science, that science mm-hmm. is, um, science doesn't give us the answers. Science isn't moving fast enough. And I understand why people feel science doesn't move fast enough. Um, but, you know, we certainly have had, um, you know, political leaders, not one, but many who have yeah. pushed back and said, you know, there are things that we are going to, we're, we're going to listen to the doctors to a point, and then we're not going to listen to them anymore. And we've yeah. seen that with public health officials. And so I believe it's important for families to know um, about this vaccine um, yes. or these vaccines, because um, I've heard a lot of rumors and, uh, you know, you never know where these rumors come from. So, right. Well, and, and again, like you, I mean, the, the irony isn't lost on me that you have been in this field for, you know, over 20 years your girls are are 10. So you were already entrenched in autism prior to actually having a child who ended up being diagnosed with autism. Um, and, you know, just to kind of detour a little bit, you know, because in Reveal, we're all about like telling stories, but also this is an opportunity for us to get, you know, slightly more personal. Um, how did you, did you feel like, okay, wow, I'm really equipped to, to deal with this. I can, I can navigate this. I, I, I got it. Or were you just like, are you kidding me? <laughs> it was a like, little of both. So, you know, yeah. they were, they were twins and, you know, I could they're tell They're so cute, by the way. That, Your oh, girls are you. like, they're very, so but they're cute. both very cute. And Sarah, yes. by the way, is um, very cognitively able. Um, mm-hmm. She, you know, doesn't, she's not a big talker, but she's very cognitively able. Yeah. And actually in this pandemic, She's the one that she's you know, the one that's been this, doing great. <laughs> yeah, she has this whiteboard, and I have you know nine a.m. This is what you do, and this is what you mm-hmm. do, and you can take a break here, and you eat here, and I have the food made for her, and she follows this routine, and she does okay. It's the one that doesn't that seems to deviate mm-hmm. from oh, you know, she's watching YouTube when she should be on, uh-huh. on screen, and you know, she's whining about having to you know do any anything that involves going out of the house, and so it's kind of weird that way because I do know that families with autism that their kids, especially those with severe behavioral challenges are really at a, dis- like they're oh, really, suffering. it's a bad situation. It's right a very yeah. bad situation. So, um, but you know, I, I just, the two of them were just so different from the moment that they were born that, you know, Jennifer was like, um, I would show video, actually I would show videos of them to my friends who were infant researchers. And they would say, oh, look, Jennifer's reaching for the cat or look, you know, blah, blah, blah. But Sarah was always in the background. She wasn't really, you know, it was always Jennifer that was more up in your face. And, you know, it didn't really bother me that they had completely different trajectories. I knew that they were just, you know, that they were just two different kids. 
Um, I was concerned when Sarah wasn't, so Jennifer started walking at nine months, which was really yeah. early. So I was like, okay, well, it doesn't matter. Jennifer will, you know, Sarah will walk when she She'll walks. just follow. Yeah. She'll just follow. Well, it got to be about 24 months and, uh, the, my pediatrician who I've since left said, oh, don't worry. They all, they all walk eventually. And I'm thinking, mm, actually hmm. they don't all walk. Like, like they actually don't. I mean, no. there was a little bit of paranoia that set in. She did eventually walk. She failed her M chats both times at 18 and 24 months. My pediatrician didn't really say any, you know, didn't really bring it up. Um, and I was kind of thinking, what are the chances? Really, what what are the odds that I get into this field years before I'm mm-hmm. even married, by the way, and then I get married and have kids and then one of them is on the spectrum. And um, it really wasn't even me because I kept thinking, oh, you know, they're just two different kids. It was my mother who um, came to visit and she was like, I really feel like something's off here and I yeah. really want you to have it checked out. And I was like, Ugh, all right, all right. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, Sarah was having these and this was like in, um, I don't know, this has been so many years when she was three. So um, this the year that they turned three, there was this polar vortex that hit the Northeast. And mm-hmm. I remember... It was just like such a struggle to get Sarah to do anything. And I remember, you know, the routines and I honestly thought she had early obsessive compulsive behavior. I, I hadn't even, I mean, just because she wasn't talking or wasn't walking, like it was really what was getting me is that she would just sit in her car seat and just scream for hours, mm-hmm. hours. If we, if there wasn't like a specific routine that was followed, I couldn't even go, I couldn't even doing it like run through the drive-thru of the pharmacy going home from daycare because she would know I mean she's not dumb she would know the route we were going home and it would alter her um it would it would get her in a tiss um and so I finally I did reach out to a friend of mine that um works at children's specialized hospital here in New Jersey and she got us in almost immediately which is unheard of so I'm very thankful for that and um you know immediately you know, did all the tests. And then I remember her coming, the, the, the team coming back into the room and Sarah was with me. And um, I knew something was off. I didn't know what to label it. And I mm-hmm. kept thinking it's OCD. And I kept thinking it was, you know, something else. And I was expressing concerns to friends even. And um, some of them said, and, and you know, that I, I'm not saying this to to, you know, to shame anyone. And I won't mention any names, but they said, you know, you're in the field, you're too sensitized to this, like you're making too much of this. And so, but then when all of this is going on, and then the psychologist came in and she said, you know, she's on this, she's on the spectrum. She's very smart. Her cognitive Mm -hmm. skills are there. Her language skills are not her social skills are not you know, the repetitive behavior is yeah. off the wall, even the rigidity, though it wasn't, all of the, the, yeah. it wasn't self-injury. It did turn into self-injury at one point, And then we, we dialed that back, but, um, and it was, it has been aggression off and on for years, but, mm-hmm. um, it was a relief to me because at a certain point I felt like there's something going on and I'm trying to get expert opinions about this and no one's, no one's really, you know, everyone's thinking I'm either, either besides my mother, I'm either overreacting or um, I'm making too much of this or I'm too sensitized to it. And finally, there's something that yeah. that they can do. And, you know, also along this way, I had gone to our, um, you know, I had I had tried the the school district route where you write yeah. the letter, you know, and they're obligated. And they sent me to this pediatrician 
in Metuchen, New Jersey, who I've since filed a complaint against, she literally, uh, she, Sarah was there, but Sarah was in a different room winding up her blocks. Mm-hmm. She talked to me for 15 minutes. She never saw Sarah. She never interacted with Sarah. And um, she told me Sarah was fine. And I was like, and she told me I was overreacting. And I was like, okay, so then that made me feel worse. But then when I kind of like collected myself, I was like, wait a second. She didn't see Sarah. She met with me for 15 minutes. Um, This was guided by the school district, right? It was Mm -hmm. the school district who sent me. So, you know, that just fired me up some more. So then I really did want to get like a real evaluation. And so, you know, Sarah, you know, I, I, she's doing great. I mean, because you know, she got into intervention, right? She's been in speech therapy. She's been in occupational therapy. Um, she's been in um, other types of psychological therapy to manage, mm-hmm. you know, anxiety and stress and yeah. aggression even, you know, she has an amazing, th- I mean, amazing therapist that works with her on um, regulating emotion. And so, um, you know, I think in some ways, actually, she was a little bit more better prepared for this pandemic than some kids, Mm -hmm. because she had all these years of therapy to help her regulate her emotions and um, help her deal with sensory challenges and, you know, help her structure her schedule. And um, we can never actually get her IEP implemented in school so that she could take sensory breaks and she, you know, could, could get on the schedule that she needed to be on. So, you know, it's been good for her. It hasn't been good for my other daughter at all. And I really feel for, you know, I feel for all parents. Right. Um, and you know, I, I know what you're going through. Um, you know, cause you know, I've got one on each side and they're 10. So obviously, you know, there are friends I have with kids that are, you know, two and three years old. And it's like, how much can you do indoors with right. the two and three year old and try to like, they're being ripped out of preschool and the preschool is like, they have to sit with their kids on a, com- a computer and like lift up letters. And you know, like it's, 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 it's so hard. So oh, yeah, it's um, so hard. And, and it's so funny. Cause we talked last week and I was saying that I've had a similar experience with my two kids, my daughter who's older and has uh, an IEP and has, you know, a lot of um, learning challenges has like been rocking it during the pandemic because, you know, she has a very consistent structure. She can kind of environmentally arrange her own, you know, bedroom. She prefers this. But my son, I actually, my, so I live in, you know, California. My son just moved to Seattle to live with my parents um, because my sister is an administrator of a private school up there and they've been in person all fall. They've been, they've done a, a superb job because my kid without a disability was has been flunking school, flunking school. Mm -hmm. He, as of last week, had 25 missing assignments, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, tears, hating distance learning. Um, And I just read an article in the Washington Post a a couple days ago saying that what, you know, people are seeing across the country is decrease in attendance in public schools and increase in private schools, especially those that have opened um, and I'm at the point where I'm so desperate because my kid is, is failing that I have allowed him to move two states away from me to live with his grandparents who are shuttling him, you know, back and forth because I don't know, like, I don't know what else to do. And, you know, I understand that for me, like, that's a, that's an incredible privilege that I have that, that we can make that happen. Um, 
And but you know, I get it because you're sacrificing, right? So well, it breaks my heart. Like my parents cost. sent me like the picture yesterday of him, yeah. like in his little sweatshirt, and I like started crying because I'm just yeah. like, oh, here's my kid starting a new school two states away, and yeah. but that's where we're at. And this you know, because the sacrifice. I mean, he's getting a great education and this great opportunity that not other, every everybody has, but at the same time. You know, he's sacrificing, you're sacrificing, your family. Mm-hmm. Like, this is just not, it's just, I mean, it's, it's, it's not ideal. And I think, no. um, you know, I, I, you know, I, I knew in, in March when this all went down, I thought, okay, this is going to be bad. Bad. I had but, no idea it would be like this. I know. I literally thought we would be like, give us a couple weeks. Right. You know, right. we'll kind of have but to. But once like, a couple weeks happened and once we got into April and May and cases keep, kept going up, yeah. I thought, okay, school-wise, I knew that nothing. It's I, like over. It was clear yeah. that teachers were were like literally like just trying to figure out on the fly. And that yep. was okay. Because they they no, there was no advanced planning. There was no advanced planning. And then um, even now, I mean – the schools that are open. So my daughter's school is open. Well, they're open four days a week. Half the kids go on Monday, Tuesday, half the kids go on Thursday, Friday. The school is closed Wednesday for disinfecting. But, um, there's, there's really just, at least in my school, I know other schools are doing a much, you know, a much better job or even a worse job. It's like, they're constantly on the shuffle for, Mm. um, for teachers, because teachers are getting sick, which yep. who can blame them? Yep. Or they're they're like, I can't take this anymore and leave it. They're exhausted. They're exhausted. They're basically doing two jobs. Most of them this are is... having to teach in person and then also for remote students because yeah. every school is, you know, kind of offered like this either kind of hybrid or in-person or remote option. And it's just insanity. And that's in the midst of like constantly changing regulations and guidance that are just – it's flip-flopping. And I think everyone is just like so – fucking tired. It's so I'm so tired of it. And also, you know, like, I feel like, so one of the things I objected to over the summer, I said, listen, here's the thing we're going to be like, I'm, I'm going to accept that I'm going to have to help them with with certain subjects. And like, I can probably fake it for like social (laughs) studies, I go science, I can handle social studies, I can fake it, you bring give me the book and I'll, I'll, Mm -hmm. I'll figure it out. And reading, you know, I, I can, you know, throw a book at them occasionally and tell them to read. But I was like, we have to do something with math because yeah. no parent knows anything about common core math. No. I don't know nothing. what California has, but New Jersey no, it's has the this same thing. Core. It, okay. It, it is a mystery to me. It, and I think and that so, I'm a smart person. And I am like, nope. <laughs> no. I know. And I begged them. And, you know, I guess, you know, you beg the school, you know, you beg the school. They don't have any control. It's the state. You write a letter right. to the state. They have a lay of, they have piles of letters from parents. So I, I, that's kind of, I mean, I think that this, I think, I hope that this, this kind of signals some more systemic changes. Yeah. Um, not with just within education, but also just the way that we operate, you know, day to day, we cannot completely go back and think that things will ever go back to normal. And we should also embrace the things that work for us. Like, you know, love it or hate it. I think telehealth's here to stay. And I agree. I, I don't think that I think that we should embrace it in a way that it should never replace what is works better in person. There are in-person visits. I mean, clearly, hopefully there are, are visits that need to be done um, in person and should continue in person. But I personally um, appreciate not having to take four or five hours off to go to a 45 minute 
therapy appointment, right. you know, because then, you know, I don't have to go and park. And frankly, I get the, I honestly, I, I get the same amount of stuff out of it. Now, my daughter's in therapy, and I don't think she gets the same, uh, same experience out of it. I also think that for families with autism, you know, it's exhausting to have to shuttle your kids mm-hmm. around for appointment for this therapy for yeah. this intervention for, you know, this appointment. And a lot of families are unable to do it because they can't get the time off of work, public transportation, mm-hmm. you know, cost and things like that. So mm-hmm. we're really pushing to make sure that telehealth continues to be covered by insurance companies. But it's a fine line because we don't want telehealth to replace any of these other things. We want it to complement right. other things. And so and that's something that you discussed in your article, changes in access to educational and healthcare services for individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities during COVID-19 restrictions. That's actually the whole title yeah. of the article. And I linked it to the show notes. Okay, great, um, great. Because it's important for, yes. for you know, what, that was that survey was done in the midst of it, though. Like that was mm-hmm. done when things were especially bad. And it was an international survey. So actually, of course, like, Things were different levels of bad, depending on where you lived. But that was like in the midst of it. That was like April. Um, And what was shocking to me at the time, which I um, have really been pushing, is like 50, only 50% of families, and these are families who have medical problems, intellectual, you know, families with rare genetic disorders with intellectual disability, um, things like seizure. I mean, seizures were a huge problem, gastrointestinal problems, psychiatric problems. I mean, these slew of problems... These families who may have been among, you know, the most severely affected, only 50% of them had access to telehealth and uh, in the midst of it, only 50% and 50% lost everything, lost educational supports, lost medical supports, lost it all. And, you know, okay, let's do better going forward. Yes. You know, we can't let, and and if that means states need to subsidize the cost of internet access, if we Mm -hmm. need to make low cost access access to phones and tablets or whatever it is. Um, ASF funded a project to make sure that they were um, for an autism related intervention in schools because, you know, schools were closed. Mm-hmm. We wanted to make sure that those technological options were open and, and paid for some hotspots and some tablets. But let's yeah. do that yeah. because this, you know, we're never going to get back to the way there is no way it was before no. anymore. And, be, and because the way it was before, you know, wasn't working already no. for so many American children. Even in California today, there was a massive class action lawsuit that's been filed against the state, the Department of Education, um, on behalf of multiple parents and families and organizations, because they are, you know, claiming that California has failed Latino and Black students during the pandemic. And some of the stories that are coming out are horrifying. Yeah, um, no, I believe I believe that, and you know, in in you know, it, it it's like it has hit black families and Hispanic families harder. Mm-hmm. We hope that some of the easing access issues will help re- relieve the disparities that were already there before, but yet they're becoming bigger through COVID. So, yeah. you know, it's kind of like you're on a hamster wheel, like you're constantly trying to help alleviate the disparities, but let, yet they kind of like keep getting bigger. So, um, you know, that's another huge issue that we need to deal with. Yeah. So, so let's bring it back to, to vaccines. And I think the disparity yes. and inequity issue is something that's going to be really interesting. So today, this morning, in fact, the CDC was meeting to discuss 
who gets vaccines first. And so first, let's just summarize that we know that there are three um, that are likely going to be seeking approval, emergency approval from the FDA this month in December. That's the Moderna vaccine, the AstraZeneca vaccine, and the Pfizer vaccine. Yes. And these, um, a lot of them use the same RMNA technology, um, to, which is really fascinating. I think for me, it's the first time this has been used in a vaccine. And also FYI, the fastest vaccine ever made was the mumps vaccine, and that took four years. This is incredible, but also there's never been a scientific moment like this in our history where like literally the smartest scientists in the entire world are focused on like the same issue. And so I have in the midst of the shit show of a pandemic really enjoyed the scientific collaboration. I think it's yeah. awesome. I mean, and look yeah. at what we can do when we work collaboratively and collectively across right. the globe. And I there's mean, this, enormous amount of resources poured into oh it my, now. I mean, endless, which is fantastic. Yeah. Um, so all of these, you know, have shown, you know, 90, 94, 95% efficacy. I think the Moderna vaccine yesterday I saw, it was 100% effective in preventing severe COVID symptoms. Yeah. So this is great. Um, but, you know, as with all things, the devil is in the details. Yes. All of these vaccines are going to require two inoculations. Right. And likely these inoculations are going to have to be around a month apart, correct? Yes. Month and, to six weeks, yeah. Okay. And also, depending on which one you may have access to, there are different storage requirements um, and timelines from where they need to be, you know, created, shipped, and then used. Um, I think the the Pfizer one has the most restrictive um, usage in terms of the, the temperature that it needs and also mm -hmm. just kind of the shelf life of the vaccine itself. I believe – and correct me again if I'm wrong, the AstraZeneca one has the most flexibility in terms of temperature and life of yeah. the vaccine prior to being used. And I've already seen some articles saying that likely the AstraZeneca one, which I think was in collaboration with Oxford University, mm -hmm. will most likely be used more in third world countries where they may not have the same kind of yeah. like cold storage facilities, et cetera. So like in the US, we will more likely have access to the Pfizer and Moderna um, vaccine. But, you know, let's talk about how they've been able to, you know, what's the end that these companies are using in order to say, hey, we're in this, like, whatever, phase three or phase four. And if you have a, you know, if you're a person that's considering this vaccine and you have children or you have children with disabilities, how might you, how do you even begin to conceptualize and understand this and make choices in terms of what, what you want to do? Because we're basically being asked to put this, you know, vaccine into our bodies that will likely occasion some type of, you know, short-term response, like a, a fever, et cetera. It's like, it's, it's like when I got the yellow fever vaccine, cause I've yes. been to Africa and Asia mm -hmm. a bunch and, and you get sick a little bit yeah. for maybe like 24 hours and, and then you're fine. Yeah. Um, but these vaccines, let's be clear, have not ever been, have not been tested on people with autism. They've not been tested mostly that many, that much on children. They've been tested across, um, um, racial categories. Uh, so how do we, how do we begin to make sense of all of this, Alicia? Help a sister out. <laughs> like, where do we go from here? So the vaccine experts and the ones that I trust um, have been very positive about this. You know, even, you know, so first of all, they've said, you know, yes, it, it normally takes years. And frankly, you know, we're still years away from really knowing the long-term efficacy, right? Because so when we say, oh, it's 95% effective, it basically means that um, out of 100 people who got the vaccine, only, let's say, five of them got 
um, well, it was 95% effective, meaning that, that almost none of them who got vaccinated got sick with, with COVID, mm-hmm. but whatever the exposure rate is with the placebo. So this, these were actually randomized control trials where people, and God bless them, there was about 40,000 no each of the one. They, yeah, they, had no they idea. volunteered to do this. No drug company said, okay, now don't wear a mask and go out and don't wash your hands. So they were taking probably normal precautions. Um, there was some racial diversity and socioeconomic diversity. Um, there's been some criticism that there wasn't enough. Um, you know, here, here we are, we're trying to get this out quickly um, and it, it can't be perfect. Um, but, you know, they really only got these vaccines like in anywhere between July and October. Well, it's only November. So we don't really know how long this vaccine is going to last. Now, the vaccine experts have said, you know, if it lasts a couple months, it's probably a safe bet to say that it's going to last at least six months. So we're talking about getting a, a initial do- dose and then getting a booster about four to six weeks later because that helps it helps trigger this immune response, which is actually acting on the DNA of your immune or the RNA, how, mm-hmm. how your immune cells, how they genetically function. So, and this is a new technology too. This, this is a very rarely used technology in the field of vaccine research. Usually you give a weakened or killed vaccine itself. I mean, mm-hmm. the virus itself. Yeah. And then that produces the, the immune response. response. Yeah. yeah. And that just wasn't working. So they tried this new technology where they're actually altering the, the genetic activity of immune cells. But um, we don't really know how long it's going to work. Experts say, okay, it's, it's worked, you know, the interim reports say it works, you know, for two or three months. So it's probably a safe bet that six months it can work for, but we still need to study that. Right. So, and that's where it's going to come in where, um, what's called post-marketing phase studies come in where we, we get the vaccine. Right. Mm -hmm. And because it's, you know, there have been very few side effects. I mean, yes, there have been, you know, maybe the first day you feel a little bit sick. Some people get a fever, um, but relative, you know, but, but other than that, there hasn't been something that's been so severe. So we get, you know, one or two vaccines and then maybe every six months we have to get another one. Mm-hmm. Um, but while this is all going on, the, probably the vaccine companies are, are continuing to improve the vaccine um, so that maybe we don't have to get it. Or maybe it's like a flu vaccine. You get it every you know, year. And then maybe at some point like polio, if enough people get it, then, um, you know, it doesn't become a public health threat anymore. You know, we still get the vaccine for it, or maybe there's a way you can get it at say birth or six months or a year, or I can't even remember when my kids got it, two years, I don't know. But, Mm -hmm. um, you know, maybe there's a point where they develop a vaccine that produces even longer term efficacy that can be given in kids. And then we don't have to get it every six months. Um, you're, You're absolutely on target though with the concerns, right? So Pfizer, they need to be stored in negative 100 degree freezers. So no pediatrician and no doctor's office that I've ever been to, you know, from, you know, except if it's been in a hospital, mm-hmm. like the guy that I go to, to get my Ambien or whatever, he doesn't have a <laughs> hundred degree, a minus hundred degree freezer in his office. So how is, so, but I have heard that doctors are saying, well, screw it. We're going to, we're going to buy a freezer. Like this is yeah. important enough. We're going to buy a freezer. It may cost us a few thousand dollars, but we have to absolutely have it. The Moderna one has a little bit less restrictions mm-hmm. on, um, it's like negative, I can't remember the number, but it's not negative 100, right. right? It's not something, I think they can, you know, figure it out a little bit easier. Um, and you're right, the the AstraZeneca one, um, 
maybe better, you know, better distributed in countries that have no access to refrigeration, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I have heard, you know, rumblings about um, uh, some possible data problems with the AstraZeneca vaccine, but I, mm-hmm. I don't necessarily feel that they're so serious because this is a you know, these are technologies that now have been repeated, right? So it's yeah. not just like, oh, J&J, it's a fluke. You know, the way that our um, Pfizer, sorry, J&J also is developing one. Um, mm-hmm. So they may, ha- there may be another rider in the game, but yeah. um, they, uh, uh, you know, they, they, they all seem to be working and, and at a rate better than a lot of the vaccines work. So it is, is very promising, but we're not there in terms of, okay, well, you get it once and you're, you're done forever. Right. Um, and, you know, along with that is the vaccine will continue to be improved over time. So, um, you know, the, the scientists, I mean, this is this is going to make big money for the for the drug companies, which they put out big money to to, to do these. Not, you know, Pfizer didn't take Pfizer didn't money. take the Operation Warp Speed money, but Moderna and AstraZeneca. And I have yeah. no issue with anyone making money off of this because they're going to have to continue to spend big money to um, improve it. And to mm-hmm. monitor it, it takes hundreds of millions of dollars to to keep monitoring the efficacy and also the safety of the vaccines for the years to come after it's released. And so yeah. that's traditionally what's taken the longest period of time with vaccine development. We've squeezed, you know, two years into one year, but we still mm-hmm. have multiple years left to, and there's to track no, people. And we just can't and we can't fast forward that because it just it requires more long long term data. Yeah. That, yeah. You can't create if you don't have the t- – there needs to be just, time. Right, right. We don't have a time machine that yeah. then we can say. But at the same time, you know, doc- you know, public health officials that are are ingrained in science – I mean, Paul Offit, who's on the board of ASF and is one of the, you know, most respected, most honest, most transparent doctors who are experts in vaccines have been very positive about this. Mm-hmm. Anthony Fauci, who – you know, has been the one that said, hold on, people, we, you know, like, let's not jump ahead and, and, and get rid of our Lysol. He's been very positive about this. I mean, public health officials have been very positive about it. I want to have a very positive look about it. I am concerned that when it comes down to it, you know, how many doses of vaccine are we going to have? Because if people need a dose and then another dose, so you mm-hmm. need for every person in the, in the world, you're going to need two doses to start out with. So multiply whatever the world population is by two. That's what we need to have. And then let's just expect for the time being that we are going to need a booster at six months. So mm-hmm. six months down the road, which I'm a little bit less concerned about because we, they could, you know, they'll buy buildings, they'll buy manufacturing plants and just yeah. start churning this out. But at the beginning, um, and I'm also concerned that I think people feel like the vaccine means that we can stop being careful. Right. And the vaccine does not mean we can stop being careful. No. The vaccine means that we can maybe send our kids back to school. Maybe, yes. you know, more businesses can open. Um, people can get back to work. That's what the, like, it doesn't mean stop wearing a mask. It doesn't mean stop. Well, it also wiping. doesn't mean COVID's not going anywhere. So right. now this is in our environment and it's going to be similar to the flu. It's here. And we, this is all about how do we manage it yeah. um, long term. And, and also I think it's something else that people need to consider. And this is why I think like right now, especially um, the dark, I'm calling it the dark winter of 2020 and 2021 <laughs> is like 
but like none of this is available to anyone yet. So like in California, for example, we are going to get 327,000 doses of the mm-hmm. vaccine, a vaccine hopefully in December. Obviously everyone knows like the, these doses are all going to go to frontline healthcare workers yeah. um, and the most vulnerable populations first. Like mm-hmm. that, 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 that is a no brainer for, for everybody, mm-hmm. but 327,000 doses of a vaccine where you need two doses in the most populous state in the country you know, I think also people need to understand, likely for people like you and I that don't have pre-existing conditions, um, and we're basically, let's just be real, Alicia, we're in the prime of our lives. You know, we're still kind of young ladies. Uh, <laughs> we are not going to be front, and and we are white, you know, so we, yeah. we're we not in the front of the line, and like, that's no. cool. Um, and, uh, yeah, exactly. I don't feel like, I feel like I'm in many ways very blessed because I have a job that I'm allowed. My husband has Mm -hmm. a job that allows him to work from home. I can work from home. If if it becomes a real problem, I'll pull my kids out of, you know, do 100% homeschooling if I have to. Um, There are people in this world that are not as lucky and they should, or people that are in much higher risk categories and they should absolutely get the vaccine first. But you're right. You think about 327,000 vaccines. All right, well, cut that in half for the right. number of people because they're going to need two doses. Although, you know, maybe they get, they do the first dose and then another 300,000 doses mm-hmm. get sent maybe. Right. within the next month, right. To, to give that, those people the second doses. There's a lot of logistics involved in this, right. Because then you have to make sure that the same per- people that got the first dose get the second dose. Mm-hmm. And also, you know, we're talking about the dark winter. No one wants to go to a doctor's office. People are yep. going to get their cars. Like, I mean, they will, right. Like they will just like they will, if you had, you know, a medical problem and you had to go to the hospital, yeah, you go, but it's not something that you absolutely want to do. So how do you distribute this? You know, do you do it through, you know, hospitals or doctor's offices Mm -hmm. or even clinics or, you know, the same way we're doing COVID tests at parks and things like that. You just drive up and they're just like, pop. Yeah. 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 And how do you, you know, how do you manage that? And then how do you track the long-term efficacy? How do you track someone that got one vaccine versus two? So there's a lot of logistics and I absolutely agree that there needs to be. And luckily there are people who are far smarter than I am that know a lot more about what they're doing than I do that are thinking about, okay, who gets it for, how many doses do we have right now? How many people like, you know, how many people are considered those high priority people? Where do they live? And um, what what's the list, you know, and how do we create some sort of list? Is there a list of people who are in, you know, you know, grade one, grade two, grade three, Mm -hmm. or grade A, grade B, grade C, you know, how, how do you do that? And these people like, I mean, they've spent years and years, you have ethicists, Mm -hmm. pharmacologists, you know, epidemiologists all thinking about this, but also the CDC is opening it up for groups. So we've been invited to not advise really to participate in discussions around, you know, how do you fit in people that live in residential care and things like that. And people on the autism spectrum, because like, of course my, you know, the obvious question for me to ask you is like, do you give this to Sarah? Um, so I would give it to both my kids, but my, my issue is, is that again, I'm in a position where I can stay at home. Mm-hmm. I want people who, who, you know, who are frontline workers or who are in residential facilities or who care for people in residential facilities, um, who, or who have children in residential facilities or, you know, those that live in senior living facilities. Like I want those people to get it first because I'm in yeah. a position to be able to to do to say that eventually 
when it becomes like when they, you know, when they take over all these old manufacturing plants and they have enough for everybody and it's not a problem, then yeah, Sarah and Jennifer and I mm. and my husband yeah. will all be getting it. But um, I, I feel like, you know, they're, they're, this is a time for us to, you know, really prioritize. It's not a time for I agree. us to be like me first. So no, I, I totally agree. And that's why, you know, I've, just been encouraging. I mean, cause I feel in the same position, right? Like, yeah, I'll get it. My kids will get it. You know, my partner will get it. Um, but we understand like we, we can just wait it out because we mm-hmm. don't have, you know, we are not frontline healthcare workers. You know, we don't have people with preexisting conditions in our, our household. Like we, we got it. Like we can just chill. Yeah. Um, here's my other question for you, because this is, this has been like my concern and it's broader than just the vaccine. And you talked about it earlier. It's that we've, are in this space right now in our culture, in our country, that is there's so much anti-science sentiment. Mm-hmm. And and obviously you have very specific groups of people in the United States that are going to be highly reluctant to take a vaccine from the government because they have been deeply abused. Mm-hmm. You know, like let's we don't even need to go into the Tuskegee experiment. Yeah. You know, like yeah. no, they I, have yeah. very good reason to yeah. not trust the government in yeah. terms of putting a foreign substance into their body that has not been respected. Um, and not been treated as a person. Um, so, so there's that, you know, history. There's also, you know, kind of this like anti-science rhetoric that has especially become so loud with Mm -hmm. the the current administration. And obviously we're going to be having an administration change. And I hope that that will help perhaps, you know, kind of swing the pendulum a little bit, but you know, this is something that you guys have had to deal with. And so I'm really interested, obviously as someone that's in a science profession myself, um, what have you, what tactics or strategies have you guys been able to use at the autism science foundation to really get people to open, be open to science without like shoving like data and graphs down their throats? Cause I, I feel like like that doesn't work. Like giving people more science on top of science and data on top of data doesn't make them believe it more. Like what have you guys found to be really effective? So I think that there's, a, there's always able to be a more open dialogue when, people feel like you're listening. And so what I've really tried to do, and, um, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm not a big, you know, I don't, I, I'm not a big fan of Fox news, but for the past two years, I've been checking Fox news periodically because I want to understand what is the perspective of groups of people that don't, that are, are pushing the science away, literally saying things like, we're not going to, we're not going to listen to the doctors. I mean, this is literally what has been said. We're not going to listen to the doctors. Um, we're going to do what we want. Um, you know, and, and I think that when there's a feeling that you're being listened to and your concerns are being listened to, you're more open to share your concerns. I think that there are people, so just like with anything, you know, whether you talk about religious extremity, extremism, or whether you talk about anti-science movement, I think that there are people that are, are on both ends. Most people are probably like, I'm on one end, but, you know, there are a lot of people that may hear things and say like, well, you know, oh, well, you know, I heard this or I have doubts because of this. Um, and those people, if, if you present them, not with numbers and data, but just consistent um, personal stories, right? Mm-hmm. So personal stories about, this is, this is my concern and this is how I got over it. Or even stories around kids who were not vaccinated. I mean, we, we saw this with autism. Stories about how kids who were not vaccinated when they were younger because their parents didn't want to vaccinate them, then when they turned 18, going out and getting vaccines on their own. 
mm-hmm. or parents who's ki- who didn't vaccinate their kids and their kids got very, very ill with something like whooping cough, right? And mm-hmm. then, then, you know, kind of turned the tide. Mm-hmm. There are going to be people on the other end of the spectrum that no matter what they're told, and there are different reasons for this, right? So I actually, comp- I, I, the the history behind how people in different religious, racial, and ethnic groups have been treated by medical science is not always pretty. And I I think that actually the the tactics that have been used there have have been, um, you know, making sure that there are black doctors to treat black Mm -hmm. patients, right? That they have access to specialty care, um, that they can identify with someone and listen to someone that they more identify with um, as being someone that they can trust. Let's face it, like a black woman is going to listen to another black woman and I don't blame them. Right. More than you're like, she's like, you understand an old white man who's going to be lecturing down to them. I get that. And so, Mm -hmm. um, and we've even seen this in communities like the Amish community, right? So like, they're actually not as anti-vaccine as people say. Mm -hmm. um, But there have been doctors who work with the Amish community that have made huge strides in helping them medically, because they are Amish themselves. And so they're doctors that you would go to anyway. And so I think being a relatable person. I think that there's a whole group on one side and a whole group on the other side that are just entrenched in where they are. But it's the group in the middle that mm-hmm. is probably, you know, kind of more open, you know, mm-hmm. maybe has heard things is open to being um, listening to science, listening to science from someone they know, um, identifying with this trusted source. Um, and I think it's just important to just like keep pushing out the right science, right? And um, also admitting when you don't know something, you know, saying like, you know, not fudging it and saying like, you know what, I don't know the answer to that question, because that engenders trust too, Mm -hmm. you know, to say we don't know that. And that's what, you know, some of these news sites have been doing is saying, look, we don't know how long the vaccine is going to last. And so it's okay to say that. Um, But, you know, personal stories, Mm -hmm. um, having someone that you can identify with and relate to as a trusted source of information, Um, you know, and then, you know, also just continuing to push out the right science information to counter what, you know, the wrong science information is, or don't, you know, the whole trust science versus don't trust science, you know, that, that those extremes are always going to be there. I think we're we're in the bulk um, that we're talking about that can be swayed. Yeah. And and I agree. I think, you know, obviously we see so much like partisan politics right now. There are so many kind of extreme viewpoints. And I don't think like social media helps with that because they just kind of keep people in their own little echo chambers. But more and more what I I realized with so many people that I talk to, and and I would definitely consider myself more of kind of like a centrist, right? Like sometimes I might think, you know, to the left a little more. Sometimes I might think to the right a little more depending on the issue. But as someone that comes from a science-based profession, I'm really interested in like what science says. And that's how I, you know, kind of guide the decisions I make in, in my life and in what I do. Um, but I think you're right, you, you know, helping people understand like st- the power of storytelling. Um, yeah. And so instead of kind of, you know, because it makes it real, right? So instead yeah. of like shoving like, here's our data and graphs that you're like, I don't know who those people are, but like, hey, here's a real person. I'm Sarah, you know, you're Alicia. We both have kids that have disabilities. You're a mother of a kid on the autism spectrum. Like those are real things. Um, and, and I also think another thing you said in terms of just being kind of transparent and honest, uh, I don't know 
what happened in our society where we feel like we have to know everything all the time. Like we can't know everything. <laughs> I know. And a lot of times I, I feel like I don't know shit. <laughs> Yeah. So I think being, you know, really honest with that and I think that building those trusts and then – or building trust and, and then lastly what you were saying in terms of representation. Like, yes, you are going to be more willing to listen to someone that is representative of, of your personal experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why it's so important for us to to continue to ensure that we have professionals, um, whether you're working with children with autism, whether in the medical professional, that truly do represent our incredible, diverse American community. Yeah, um, yeah versus like you were saying, you know, like – no offense to like old, you know, white male doctors, like that's great. Um, but yeah, like, am I going to listen to something more from a woman, you know, that's maybe, um, middle-aged and also likes to wear hoop earrings in what she has to tell me? I think so. Um, (laughs) so so I get it. Yeah. And I think that's something within autism research specifically that ASF is, is pushing to change is to make sure that we're training more diverse people, Mm -hmm. right? Like we're, we're, because they're going to be working with, families, you know, hopefully, right? Like hopefully we all work with more families of color, but if they are able to identify with different groups better than say an old white man can, then we mm-hmm. should we should push to make that happen. And that's how we, you know, kind of bring people, you know, how, how we kind of, you know, help the, the wider group of people, not just, you know, yeah. old white men. But, yeah. I, you know, I, 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 I do understand and I do I actually, I, I understand, you know, there are a lot of, there are families out there who have stories that are, are very compelling in my, and, you know, I'm not trying to be patronizing. Like I've, I've met them mm-hmm. that they, um, feel like their, their child's and it's, and it's mostly an intense disability yeah. kids who, um, are now adults who do not speak, who mm-hmm. are wheelchair bound, who need 24 seven care. I mean, these are not, you know, quirky little Sarah Rosses. These are, mm-hmm. you know, these are severely impacted people. And, um, you know, I want to help them, but you know, my scientific mind tells me that it's, it's, it's not the vaccine. It was, it's something else. And we need to be guiding more research someplace else, but it's not, and I'm, and I'm really not trying to be patronizing. I do, I, you know, I, I often, I often think about like, when I think about the vaccine argument, like I often think about the families that I've met and think about like, all right, how are they going to absorb this information? Like, how Mm -hmm. are they going to respond to the information? Because there's, they're, um, you know, and not all of them are, you know, there have been some that have been openly hostile and aggressive and aggressive, but they're not all. I mean, I, so I do try, I mean, and I think everyone should try and put themselves in that position. And what would happen if you had a child or a family member that was severely impacted and every single fiber in your being told you that it was vaccines that did this to them? So, um, Right. I mean, and that's that's really, I talk about this all the time. It's the idea of taking kind of a circumstantial view of behavior. Like why might someone feel so strongly about this? Why might someone be, you know, aggressive, but you have to understand their circumstances and what they've experienced Mm -hmm. and how that shapes the behavior that they engage in and the words they, they might use or the viewpoints that they might have. And, and that's, I think if nothing else that is, you know, missing more in our society right now, it's this idea that through having the circumstantial view, it allows us to better understand and be able to respond in a more compassionate way to everyone in all different types of 
situations because we are spending the time to kind of understand what has happened in their environment that has shaped the things that they believe, say, or do versus yeah. just like, well, you're wrong. Right. Uh, well, that, that's not accurate. Um, and it just leaves space and room um, for understanding. And I think, you know, I mean, for God's sake, if this year hasn't taught us anything, it's the fact that like we need to understand each other and listen to each other a little more and give each other a little grace. I mean, yeah. good grief. Everything sucks. Um, especially, you know, for, we talked about this. I mean, we're both like, you know, full-time working moms and like where I am in California, there ain't no one going back to school, you know, this school year. <laughs> no, and I know, so I know, I heard about that. Why, yeah. why are we going to, you know, continue to engage in like hateful behavior towards each other, um, versus like, Hey, where are the threads that can connect us? Um, how can I, you know, use my own story and my voice to again, create, you know, that authentic, um, connection with others. And then again, hopefully provide like science-based information that really helps guide people's decisions. Um, because we need it. Uh, and you know, and science has shown that we can do like incredible things together and overcome incredible challenges if we use, you know, the best of what we can within the scientific community. So here's my hope. Okay. Um, my hope is that you would be open potentially to coming back, um, to talk more because this is going to be an ongoing conversation. And I know that, you know, when Fade and I talked to you, we said the same thing. Um, and, uh, I also, on a personal note, um, just want to thank you for being, you know, so kind and compassionate to me. I mean, like for both of us to lose Feta, and I mean, we talked, you know, what did you talked with us? What three weeks before she died? I think. Yeah, and I have yeah. to say, every like first two some some days, I'll just get, and I haven't turned off the notification. It says record. I sent you a screenshot of it. Mm-hmm. Every once in a while, on a Tuesday, I'll get a note that says record the scoop, and I've yep. never dismissed it because. I think that 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 it just it just not that I don't think about it every day, but you know it just kind of like it does kind of make me feel better to know that she was in my life, mm-hmm. and I think that we've built a community, you know, yeah. around a love for this person that was mm-hmm. so influential. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll, yeah. I just want to add one thing about yes. you know this is kind of a, so I watched this show. Maybe some of your listeners know this <laughs> show. It's called. 90 day fiance. (laughs) So the idea behind this show is that there are people that, you know, let's face it, about 75% of them have met each other over the internet and they come from completely different backgrounds, right? Mm -hmm. But they've decided that they're in love and they're going to move, they're going to move to whatever country. So sometimes they come from another country and move to the U S sometimes they come go from the U S to go to another country Mm -hmm. and they get together And it's just like mayhem, right? And everyone, you know, everyone thinks, oh, this person is wrong or this person is wrong or like, look at the way they're behaving. There was one where there's one where this, um, you know, she was raised in a wealthy white community in Princeton, New Jersey. Her father was a, was a, a cardiologist and she met a man and she got pregnant, um, and she moved to Ethiopia. Mm Mm-hmm. And this relationship has been so contentious because, you know, she comes from a completely different culture and he Mm -hmm. comes from a completely different culture. And I always try to feel like when, whenever I feel like they've said something so stupid, I think, okay, listen, Binium, 
he, this is the way he was raised. This was, yeah. this is, he is not going to change. This is the way he was raised. This is with the beliefs that was, have been ingrained in his head. And it's the same for belief in science. There's been a belief that's been ingrained in his head that this is what you do. This is what you don't do. And there's not, I mean, for me, there's nothing wrong. I mean, he says stuff like, oh, you know, um, it's a sad, it's sad she had a C-section because now she won't love the baby enough. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, I'm like, that's ridiculous. But at the same time, I'm thinking he didn't just come up with that. Like, that's something that's been taught to him. And I think for yeah. a large group of people, we're recapitulating this. Like, we're saying, like, this is the way you're raised, that you completely, like, um, don't believe in science, that you're always raised to be doubtful. And, um, you know, and there are some valid reasons. I mean, and I don't even actually think the, re- you know, like I may disagree with th- this, this idea, some of the ideas, but I get where they come from. So you kind of have to re- realize you have to get where these people, where, where people's ideas are coming from. They don't just like come. Right. Like it's, out of no, it's not out of nowhere. Sure. Like these are shaped over time through successive experiences yeah. in the environment. Yeah. 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 So I wanted to show that little bit of 90 day. Yeah. I mean, because I know, like, full disclosure, like, I know you go hard on trash TV. Um, (laughs) I saw on your Facebook, Alicia, that you saw one of the, like, Real Housewives of New Jersey, and you got a pic in the airport. Oh, yeah. I I was like, "Mm -hmm." I I was on my way to Jamba Juice at Newark Airport. Of course, this Mm -hmm. was, you know, last year, pre-COVID. And I caught a glimpse of Melissa and Joe Gorga from the Real Housewives Mm -hmm. of New Jersey. And I chased them to their gate and got a picture. They were not you're, happy. They were gracious, person. though. They were gracious. I'm going to say, if they're listening, that was me. Thank you so much for taking a picture with me. You were so gracious, and I completely could tell you didn't want to do it. Um, I've also, I stalked um, George Takei and his husband outside a bathroom at the Minneapolis Because you love Star Wars? Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, I love George Takei. And so, like, <laughs> he was on a flight. Of course, he was flying first class, and I was in coach. So as soon as they got off the plane, I, like, ran up and, like, followed them. And, of course, they went to the men's room. So I'm just, like, hanging out outside the men's room until they walked out, and I got a picture. Um So, yeah, I do go hard on the trash TV. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, <laughs> then to me, the way I'm going to introduce you next time is, like, Dr. Alicia Halliday. Um uh, also a stalker. So, you know, full-time doctor, part-time stalker. <laughs> if you're on stalker. a reality show, beware. <laughs> Stay away from New Jersey because I will find you and I will stalk you down and I will take a picture with you because I watch them all. I watch the – I watch them all. I watch the 90 Day Fiance. I watch the – Bachelorette, The Bachelorette, all of that the shit. Batch, uh, the Bachelorette, not so much anymore because it was interfering with another show I was watching. Like I think it was like one of the Real Housewives franchise oh. or something like that. Uh, Love after lockup, where they meet they meet people in jail, and then the people get out of jail, and they are ba- they basically have to start a new life together. And sometimes things work out, and sometimes they don't. Um, but you know, you you marry someone in a completely different environment in prison, and can only see them like once a week, and then you have to live with them every day. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I watch them all. So oh I have very God. little time for actual like Netflix or, mm-hmm. um, you know, everyone's asking me about like, oh, have you been watching The Undoing? No, I don't have time for that. I'm watching. Or The Queen's know. Gambit, which was fantastic. I have not I seen binged The binged watch Gambit. that in one week. Oh, girl, I you have need heard, to watch The Queen's I know, Gambit. I know. I'm going to have to take an afternoon on a weekend and watch The Queen's Gambit because, um, yeah, I did. I have gotten halfway through The Crown. Okay. Um, well, at least there's which, that. Yeah. To kind of at balance your trash one. TV. <laughs> Uh-huh. Yeah, 
from Hulu to Netflix. Oh my God. Okay. Well, Alicia, I always love seeing and talking to you. Thank you. I will, Thank we'll, you we'll let you get back to your, on. you know, stalking and trash TV <laughs> behavior in the midst of your scientific journal writing. Um, and we'll also, I'll have you, yeah, I'll have you come back because this is, you know, this is an evolving story. I would um, love that's to. That's not going to be done so anytime much. soon. No, no, unfortunately. And, you know, hopefully this means, you know, I hope we all know that th- these infectious diseases are not, you know, to be played with, you know, yeah. when SARS was around, Many years ago, we were able to nip it in the bud quicker, but it took a while for us to nip and Ebola is still a problem, right? Yeah. It's not even like it's not a problem anymore. Um, it's still a problem. It's a more manageable problem. Yeah. Hopefully we've, we've learned from these experiences and know how to handle these threats before they, they spread even further. I mean, if this had been Ebola, really, like we would be in a much different situation, you know? Yeah. Like we, Maybe like that's the title of this episode. Bad. At least it's not Ebola. <laughs> At least it's not Ebola. <laughs> At least it's not Ebola. Yeah. Awesome. At least it's not Ebola. Yeah, but I mean, we also, I mean, I, I had hoped through HIV, we had learned something about trust in science. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think we backtracked a little bit. And I think we got too complacent, right? Yeah. And didn't really think about because these things were being handled. And uh, once they're not handled, they become threats. So thank you so much for joining me for this episode of Reveal. I hope that you were able to learn something that you were able to grow a little bit as a person as a result of listening to this episode. And I hope that you follow this podcast. We're on like every podcast platform. So it's Google, it's Spotify, it's Anchor. And this is just the beginning of a lot more really awesome stories about incredible women that are doing amazing things. So have a great day. Follow us on all of the platforms. You can follow us also on Instagram at reveal.comm and also on Facebook, which means I'm going to have to get a Facebook account, but I'll figure that out eventually. Have a great day, guys. <laughs>